0: I love hearing you tell me, bring the book, bring the book. It's, it, it reminds me that I have a people that appreciate the importance of the Word of God because if I don't bring the book, then I'm an unworthy servant of Jesus Christ. I have it on a plaque that I've made in my office that says, by nourishing yourself on these truths and by placing them... Before the people, you will be a good diakonos, a good servant of Jesus Christ. Whatever else you do, if you don't do this, you will not be a good servant of Jesus Christ. So I'm thankful that you remind me of that each Sunday. We're in a... Series on the solas, the five solas. That uh, it's now 504 years since the Reformation. We finished the first two books of the Psalter down through Psalm 72, and so we are in the process of uh, working ourselves through the solas. Then, when we come to the last one, Soli Deo Gloria, I will work through and probably do a couple of months. Probably on what it means for us to glorify God after we finish that Lord willing We will be in the gospel of Matthew and that will take several years But I'm going to pause when Dylan Lord willing Graduates and he is planning on starting the doctoral program. He'll have a short time period And so I said I want to give you an opportunity to preach Um Uh, when you graduate, and it'll be a short time frame, several months there, and I said, uh, I want you to preach a book. And he goes, which one? I go, why don't you do the Old Testament, something in the Old Testament. He said, how about Deuteronomy? I said, wonderful, wonderful. So pray for Dylan as he finishes his classes, and Lord willing, we'll eventually come to uh, Deuteronomy. We may fail to recognize just how important that book is as foundational to the lives of the old covenant people and to the new covenant people as well we have a number of people who are on the road right now uh... driving long distance some all the way down from uh... key west florida are trying to drive back home oh just think of those i'm i'm too old to do those long trips but some of you hey. You're still young, spry, and you can stay awake. Um, so we want to pray for them as well as ourselves this morning. Lord, as we open the book, we pray for grace and mercy. We think of Psalm 119. Lord, open our eyes that we may behold Pay attention to wondrous things out of of your law. Incline, turn, bend our hearts, particularly our wills, to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away our eyes from looking at worthlessness, bizarre, things that just not only don't matter, but things that are displeasing to you. Turn our attention to you. Establish your word. Make it real in our lives. Keep it from being print upon a page and take the print and make it living reality in our lives. Minister grace and mercy. We pray for folks who are on the road right now. Keep them awake, alert. May they be able to pull up on their radios or on their CDs helpful uh, truths to remind them of you as they travel and to be thankful. So we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled this one, this is part two on the grace of God and based upon uh, first Peter, and Peter says, I am writing and exhorting to you regarding the true grace of God. There is a false grace of God, false understanding of the grace of God, so Peter is writing a corrective to that, and so this morning I want us to think about part two, the true grace of God. I'm going to briefly review the grace of God in salvation, but remember Salvation in the Bible, you can speak of it in several aspects. You can say, by grace, I have been saved. It's a past event. What am I saved from? I'm saved from the penalty of sin. But 1 Corinthians 15, Paul also uses that in a present tense, you are being saved. My salvation, your salvation, your deliverance is not complete yet. I am currently being delivered from sin, and one day we will be completely delivered from sin. And so Romans 5, I will be saved. So you can talk about I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved, properly understood in those particular contexts. So we're going to just briefly review what it means to have been saved from the penalty of sin, how grace and faith are inextricably intertwined in that salvation, and then we're going to look at I am being saved, namely the aspect of my salvation in terms of sanctification. So we remind ourselves of the five solas, uh, scripture alone, it starts here, it starts with a book. Bring the book. We need it corporately together, and you need it individually. Satan would be nothing more pleased in his evil plans to say, This book isn't important. You got other stuff to do. Remember what God told in Deuteronomy 17 when the king comes to the throne, what is he supposed to do? supposed to have a copy of this book, just like the Levites have, your own handwritten copy, a Mishnah, and you're supposed to read from it every one of your days. Why? So you won't be lifted up in pride and think, I'm here because I'm something special. You're there by God's appointment, and I'm supposed to read it so I will obey it and teach the people to obey it as well. So it starts with Scripture. And it's by faith alone. Faith is not a work. Some view, well, if it's something I'm doing, then that's a work towards God. No, faith, rightly understood, is, we call it an instrument. It's the means, but open hands, that I am receiving a gift. And the willingness to receive that gift is already evidence that God has regenerated your heart that you would even desire, be convicted of sin and know that you need a Savior. And it's by grace alone, grace basically unmerited. I can't deserve it. I can't earn it. I've earned something, (laughs) and so have you, every one of you. You know what you've earned? You've earned a payday, and you're going to get your wages. The wages of sin is death, and it's the second death. And by grace, God He has common grace for all sinners, but he has special effective grace, electing grace for those who eventually find out that the reason why I asked God to save me because something had already taken place in my heart and in my life. Next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we will look at Christ alone and then have the Lord's table, and then we'll begin the series on solely to glory to the glory of God alone. So I just remind you what does grace mean. Grace means God's unmerited favor. Unmerited. Some days I obey God better than others, and in my faulty thinking, I may think. Well, I deserve God's grace today because I obeyed him a little bit better. No, I never merit. If you ever take grace and you think of it regardless whether it is sanctifying grace or saving grace, it's always unmerited. You know what this is called? It's called the word of his grace. You know what that means? I don't deserve this book. I don't deserve this revelation from heaven. What is prayer called? It's called the throne of grace. In other words, I don't deserve in my sinfulness to have access to the living God who changes hearts. So when you read grace, or as we will look at in Psalm 86, saturated in the Old Testament when he prays, be gracious to me, O Lord, what the psalmist is actually praying is, is the same thing in Hebrews 4:16. I need grace, I need mercy in my life. And at the end of the day, we do not say if we understand grace. Well, I really did something good for you, Lord. We can say, I exercised my human responsibility, I tried hard, I was not passive in terms of sanctification. We'll see that justification is not active. Sanctification is active. You are commanded, I am commanded, and if we're God's children, he is giving us the grace to obey him. So Paul, at the end of the day, what does he say? He says, I labored harder than all the other apostles. But he brings it back to the grace. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, ineffective. I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God. He recognizes that the energy... The impulse that he had in his will, his fervor to serve God, ultimately was a manifestation of the grace of God in his life. That God took a person who was persecuting the church of God, thought he was doing the right thing. I heard I, I, I heard this voice. I saw this light from heaven. And something happened in the apostle. At least Saul at that time who became Paul. That's all a manifestation of the grace of God and the enablement for him to suffer the way that he did. And the energy, the strength, that's all the grace of God. So we remind ourselves that ultimately salvation as an entity from the beginning to the end is all of grace. Now, let me go back to... Reformation in uh, the 1500s, and talk about the understanding of grace at that time. There was a Counter Reformation uh, in uh, that came out of Rome, and it was established at the Council of Trent. Um, the um, and the words are infusion. Or imputation, key words. You may not understand those words, but if you get an infusion, you go in and uh, you're dehydrated, and you go to the the ER, and they go, "Your your your fluid level. You you need some electrolytes." So they're going to hook you up to an IV, and they're going to give you an infusion. But if they said, "I'm just going to impute it to you," <laughs> you're going to be you're going to be in serious condition because all they're going to say is, I'm going to put it to your account. I'm not going to do anything for you necessarily other than to say, this is now true of your account, you have whatever you need. So there was the term, and they came back at the Council of Trent, and they said, we do not believe what Luther and the Reformers taught regarding imputation And the difference is this. Let me show you. This is artist rendering of the Council of Trent. All the important bishops, the pope, were there. Uh, uh, A later artist rendition of that. And they said uh, that the council ruled against Luther's doctrine of justification by faith alone. It said, a person was inwardly justified by cooperating with divine grace that God graciously bestows. In other words, here's the difference. When you, which comes first, justification or faith? This isn't a trick question. You're just looking at me like, he asked the. That's what students do me. I, I try and ask them something straightforward, and they're looking at me like, we're not going to answer you because you're going to tell us we're wrong. No, I know you know this. Abraham believed God, and then what? It was imputed to him for righteousness. That's imputation. So until I believe upon Christ, I am not declared righteous in the sight of God. Remember, justification is is a declaration. It is not making you righteous at that moment. It is declaring that you are righteous in the sight of God. Well, how can God do that when I'm a guilty sinner? Because he is just and the justifier, the one who believes in him. In other words, that's why Christ died. He not only lived a perfect, sinless life, But he also died and paid the penalty. So the greatest need of you and I as sinners is righteousness. An absolute righteousness. So my sins are forgiven and the righteousness of Christ is put to my account. It's not put to everybody's account. It's put to only the account of those who believe upon him and trust him. So... The understanding that came about with Luther and the Reformation was this. On account only of God's unmerited favor and love, the Holy Spirit moves to regenerate a person's spirit. They're united to Christ through faith. Faith is the instrument that allows one to enter into that union and receive its benefits. And through this union occurs a double exchange. My sin is imputed to Jesus Christ and his righteousness is imputed to me. So if you want fairness, did Christ get fairness? No, what I want is grace and mercy. Now, what the Council of Trent said was no. This declaration of righteousness, they call that legal fantasy, fiction. In other words, if you're not made righteous, you can't be into the presence of God. So, in other words, grace is infused. It's poured into you, and so it helps you cooperate with God, so you progressively become more righteous in your life until that ultimate day when maybe you have to go to purgatory to get the rest of it out. So then, you can be in the presence of God. No. The Bible is absolutely clear on this issue. Now, but justification and progressive sanctification, the process of becoming more holy in your life, they're inextricably linked. All those who are justified will be sanctified and will be glorified. But when you confuse those concepts, guess what? If being right before God requires you in your experience to be right before God and righteous, when are you going to get there? And that is why those who confuse justification and sanctification and blur those together they have no assurance that they're going to get to heaven. I've talked to folks who do that, and I say, they say, that's arrogant for you to say that. How can you know that you're going to heaven? You can't know that until you die. I said, well, I'm just basing it on the book. Sola Scriptura. This is what it says. God's righteousness has been imputed to me, and my sins are forgiven. So... We're looking at reviewing, then, the true grace of God in salvation. It is sovereignly granted by the God of all grace. He says in Exodus, this great revelation to Moses, I I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name, his name, before you. And the first two ones, I will be gracious, that's extend grace, to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So that's why we talk about sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. And some object to that and say, I don't like sovereign grace. I go, I was told in seminary, if you never have any object, anyone object to you when you treat on sovereign grace, you better examine yourself because you're not treating it rightly. So Romans chapter 9, Paul answers that question. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. And he quotes that. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows Mercy, Romans 9, 17, that is what we mean by sovereign grace. Now, with sovereign grace, there is also human responsibility. I didn't say ability, I said human responsibility. You say, well, how do you put those together? I'm a compatibilist. I do what Spurgeon said, I don't have to reconcile friends. I may not understand them completely, but God is sovereign. It's up here, and He holds us accountable and responsible. So when I go to somebody, I don't go. Uh, I had a friend, and he was uh, in a restaurant and talking, chatting with uh, the waitress, and she said, "Well, my dad is a Presbyterian pastor, and he believes in predestination. So if I'm going to be saved, I'm going to be saved, and it doesn't matter." No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is you need to repent. God commands all men everywhere in all times to repent and believe the gospel. You have a responsibility to do that. And then if I do that, I find out something has taken place in my life when I read the Bible. God has been gracious to me and opened my eyes. Now... When Moses, Exodus 34, 8, 9, received that great revelation of God, you know what he did? He bowed his head and he worshiped. So rather than object to sovereign grace of God and revelation of himself, we ought to be thankful. Now, in particular, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 18, because this is, we appropriate grace through faith. What does that mean? I know of no better passage than to go to Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. And in verse 9, we're told the reason why Jesus spoke this parable. It is spoken to whom? Just look at the text. To those who trusted in themselves. That means you are trusting that your mind is able to tell you the right way and you're looking at yourself and you're going, I'm not a sinner like everybody else. There are sinners, but I'm pretty much able to trust my own way. And they're thinking that they're righteous. They bring themselves into a right standing with God. And you know what that does? You know what pride does? It always looks down on others. You're not like I am, so you're a little bit less. That's what legalism does. I got my own standards, not necessarily God's standards, and if you don't meet my standards, then I'm going to look down on you. It says they despise others. So here's the import of this parable. To those who trust in themselves, thinking they're righteous, and they treat others with contempt. And so here we go. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, very well-respected religious leader in that culture, and the other a tax collector. Now, a Talones here, um, if, 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 if we had um, people in the IRS as part of our fellowship, I hope you won't hold them with contempt. But a Talones, he, he was way down here on the low rung because, especially being Jewish, he is doing the Romans' work for them. They're not, they're not the holders. It's a tax farming uh, kind of situation. In other words, someone pays a price, and he gets this geographic area, and he gets to collect the taxes from it. But he will subcontract, perhaps, to a Jewish person to go out and do the dirty work. Now, how how much can he get in his taxes? Whatever he can get from you. So if you're wealthy, he's going to try and extract you from you even more. So the prevailing system of tax collection afforded a collector many opportunities to exercise greed and unfairness, and a strict Israelite was even more offended the tax collector's had to interact continually with the Gentiles. So here's the lowest guy in Jewish society. That's why when you call tax collectors and sinners, they're always singling them out, known for their extortion. So the Pharisee starts to pray. And what's he pray? God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, Unjust, unrighteous, adulterous, and he looks over at this other guy and he goes, "In particularly, I'm not like this tax collector. This, this, this guy's the scum of the earth. And let me tell you what I do for you, Lord. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I thank you, Lord, I'm not like other people. There's no mention of grace, no mention of mercy, no mention of sin, no mention of hypocrisy. And the tax collector, standing a fire off, he doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but what does he do? He beats his breast. Now, it's often translated, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But the word there is actually in Greek, it means be propitious to me. He wants propitiation. He understands something of the Old Testament and he needs propitiation. He needs satisfaction for his sin. And he cries out for it and he's going to understand that this is based on grace and mercy. And so we go to the beginning. Who does Jesus say this is for? Those who trust in themselves and think they're righteous. And then we come down to hit the end and the capstone on this. I tell you, this man this tax collector went down to his house, and the tense here is having been justified. Something happened in the past, and it's ongoing in the present. In other words, here's what happened. He wasn't made righteous in his experience at that moment. He was declared righteous by God. And the the point is, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, And he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, only humble people are saved. Arrogant people aren't saved. You got pride in your life and you don't think you need the Lord. You can never be saved. You have to humble yourself. You have to say, I am a guilty sinner. And you have to say, I need forgiveness from heaven for my sin. And it's there. Grace is there. You have to appropriate it by asking God for forgiveness and recognizing your need of grace and mercy." So then I want to come to uh, the grace of God in sanctification, and for that, to turn to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or as they pronounce in the German, Bonhoeffer. Um, If you've read Eric Metaxas's book, it's an excellent treatment of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. who paid for his views with his own life. Uh, Auschwitz was the largest and deadliest of the uh, death camps where hundreds of thousands of people were tortured and murdered during World War II. Um, when we were in Europe, some of you have been to Auschwitz, we've been to Dachau and we went there and it's still they kept some of the ovens there and it's just a massive area you walk through and you get it, some type of idea of the number of people that were uh, killed. There's another one um, out uh, near north uh, what was Bavaria near the Czech border and that's where uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was placed um, when you go to these and you walk through, you'll see something over the entrance in German. Arbeit macht frei. Work makes freedom or makes a people free. Um, those in there began to mock that statement and added to it not only "Arbeit." Arbeit macht frei. Durch crematorium nummer drei. Work makes you free through, cremator- through crematorium number three. That's how you become free. You become free through death. So Flossenberg was one where uh, he was uh, sent, and there just a couple of weeks before... Uh, the Allies liberated that death camp. He was he was put to death along with six six others. There is a uh, memorial there at that Flossenburg concentration camp, um, and at the top is the name of Diedrich uh, Bonhoeffer, and he and he wrote a book, The Cost of Discipleship. Some of you have read that book, and he uses the term cheap grace, cheap grace. Here's what he writes. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it's been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it weren't cheap? He writes, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness Without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. In other words, he was reacting to what was happening in the church in Germany at that time that liberalism had crept in, they had bought the lie of Hitler, and they just looked the other way. Jerry did an excellent uh, couple of Wednesdays ago when he taught on sanctification, and that remark helped me here if I'm remembering it correctly by Sinclair Ferguson. Grace? Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything you have. That's right. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything you have. By that, it means this. Once I recognize I belong to the Savior, I am not my own, I have been bought with a price, and I am to glorify God with my body, with my mind, with everything that I have. True, for You're a slave, and I'm a slave. We're either a slave to sin or we're a slave to Jesus Christ. And someone says, well, I don't want to be a slave to Jesus Christ. I look at it this way. There's a wonderful book, if you haven't seen it, it's called Slave by John MacArthur. When he went to get it published... The publishers said, That's not a good title. People aren't going to want to read that, and there will be all the ramifications of racial slavery that uh, now, not in the. And he says, No. If you don't want to publish it, I'll go to somebody else who will publish it. Now, when you're in a. If I would say that, they go, Bye. But if you published about fifty to sixty books, and they know they're going to sell, so they want you. A, so they published it. But the essence of that is this: "Doulos" in the New Testament means exactly that. It means a slave. So we think of slavery as something bemeaning. Look, a slave of Jesus Christ means he's my master, and I'm free. Is is Jesus Christ going to do anything to me that is not for my good and his glory? Well, when things happen to me and I don't like them, sometimes I think, yes, he does. Then I have to repent of those. So he watches over me. He cares for me. He brings trials and difficulties in my life. So that sin that is so stubborn within me, I'll realize I need trials. I need tribulations. I need tests so that I will get rid of me as numero uno and have him as preeminent. And I will think of others in the body of Christ as more important than myself. Do you do that when you get up in the morning? Start to pray for others and you go, you know, I need to pray for them. They're more important than I am. Most important thing for me in the morning is a cup of coffee and go in and swim. And so I say, Lord, help me to have that kind of mindset. So cheap grace was not only there during the Holocaust, but cheap grace has been with us throughout time. Paul fought it. He fought it. So let's look at a couple of those passages. We're talking about now at discipleship. And there's an objection and encouragement to sin. Look over quickly at Romans 6, 1 through 4. Now, we are baptistic here in uh, our understanding of Romans chapter 6. Uh, this, This is a dry text. Water doesn't accomplish what is depicted here in this passage. Water symbolizes what takes place in this passage. So when we baptize someone, at least here at Grace, and we're baptistic, we say what we're doing is a our actions that symbolize what should have taken place in a person's life. In other words, you're standing there, and I say, or whoever is doing the baptism doesn't say the pastor has to always do it. We have uh, fathers baptizing uh, their children who have made a profession of faith. It's this, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in baptism. So symbolically, you're going underneath the water to represent death and raised to newness of life. And the point of baptism, the essence of baptism, is really not water. The essence of baptism is union. It's identification. You're identified with Jesus Christ. But notice also, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, the purpose is that we too might walk in newness of life. So I tell a baptismal candidate when I meet with them a couple of times, is your desire now to live For the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, because you've been raised to newness of life. And if someone tells me, nope, I don't want to do that. I just want to be (laughs) be done with this thing called water baptism, but I still want to live for myself. Then you don't understand the whole import of this passage here. But some look at the objection back in 520. The law came in to increase the trespass. And where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What a great passage. I would not have known transgressions. Oh, I would have had transgressions, but I would not have known covetousness if the law had said, you shall not covet. So when it said, you shall not covet, you know what it did? (laughs) It made me want to covet even more. And there, because I can't have it, sinfully, I want that thing. Until I recognized that sin, coveting is sin, and that's me, that's my heart. And so grace comes in. Someone says, well, if, if, if you have grace, let's just keep on sinning so that grace may abound. That is such a terrible understanding of the word of grace. That's false grace. Grace means how great a debtor Daily, I'm constrained to be. I recognize that God has transferred me out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his own dear son. I am not my own. I want to live for him. And his testimonies are now my delight. Now my delight. So, running out of time, I want to get to to, two more sections. In Galatians 2. That's what legalism does. It turns the grace of God and says, follow these rules rather than pointing to Jesus Christ and what he has done. And some, 2 Peter 2.18, Jude 4 as well, they turn the grace of God to licentiousness. Now, you may not use that term every time you get up. And if I were to ask you, what's licentiousness mean? You might look at me and you go, I don't know, would you tell me? Yes, I will. What looks like at the bottom in English, at least with licentiousness, is the word license. So you have legalism in one ditch and you have license on the other word. So the word there, in Greek, it means living with no moral constraints. Some will say, hey, hey, just follow us. We can do whatever we want to do. Grace has set us free. You know what Peter says? They're still slaves of sin. They're promising you freedom. And sin never makes you free. The more you sin, the more you are bound tightly by the cords of that sin. So let's talk about the true grace of God in sanctification. By sanctification, that word means to be set apart from sin to God. In holy living and we have a responsibility grounded in divine grace Paul says I'm thankful that when I was when I'm absent from you it's you're functioning just as if I were there and he admonishes us to work out it's a present imperative work out accomplish your own soteria your own salvation You go, well, does that go against justification? No, he's writing to saints who have already been justified, and this aspect of salvation is the one you're presently going through. We call it progressive sanctification. Work it out. You have a responsibility to do this to appropriate grace and mercy. So it's not passive. It's active. You have to do these things. And when you don't feel like doing them, you know what you do? You cry out for grace and mercy, for God to jiggle my willer and make me willing to do them. And I get up and do them. I got up Saturday morning. I'd been doing the things I hadn't been doing, and I, and I went in, got out of bed. My knees didn't function quite right. And I go, do I really want to go in and swim this morning? And I got into Nautilus, and I usually do a half a mile, did three laps, and my body's telling me, just quit. Just quit. You're getting too old to do this. And I kept going for pretty much. It got easier. So we establish godly habits in our lives. That's part of godliness. We do these things. And when I don't feel like doing them, I cry out to God. And so you want to establish. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is at work in you. To what extent? Both the doing and the willing for his good pleasure. So we have a responsibility, and his grace, you ever pray and God didn't answer your prayer the way you prayed? Well, Paul says, I'm in that camp. (laughs) I prayed three times. Lord, take it away, take it away, take it away. And you know what his answer was? My grace is sufficient for you. Because in my weakness, then I have to depend upon him for strength. That's what we see in 2 Timothy 2.1. Um, another responsibility to appropriate the means of grace, 2 Peter 3.18, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to save the Lord's Supper uh, for next week. I talk about Receiving grace at the Lord's table. I don't want you to misunderstand what I mean by that phrase. When I say, do you receive grace at the Lord's table? It's not something magical that happens to you. You may not feel it. Here's how you get grace at the Lord's table. I look at the elements, and I'm to be reminded of something. I'm to engage in mind renewal. I'm to remind myself that Christ is the most important person in my life. He paid the debt that I cannot pay. And as I look back on that and I think about that, it keeps me rooted and grounded in the most essentials of Christianity. So grace is imparted as I think correctly and reminded to respond correctly. And as I look around, this is my true church family. Everyone here who is regenerate, Not regardless of your social standing, regardless of how much money you have in the bank account or how much debt you may have. If you are truly God's children, you know what? We're one. We're one in Jesus Christ. And that should be a reminder as we come to the Lord's table. If you don't, remember what they were doing at Corinth? Some were getting drunk at the Lord's table, some bringing in their own food, and, hey, you can't have my stuff, that belongs to me. And they were expressing disunity and pride and arrogance, and the Lord disciplined. And then finally, what does it say? You do this until he comes. And so I'm reminding myself, my feet are temporarily here. I live at 98 Creekside only for a short time. I hope it's the last place we move. I don't have a, a desire to go somewhere else. But this is not my true eternal home. And so as we engage in mind renewal, thinking about the elements, God imparts strengthening grace to think about Him correctly. That's why this is called the word of His grace. We don't deserve it. Now, if you just come in next week, Lord willing, and you partake of the Lord's table, and you don't think upon these things, you don't engage your mind, you just mechanically take the bread and the cup, you know how much grace is imparted? None, because you didn't think correctly. It's not magically taking of those elements, You have to partake of those elements. You have to think correctly. You have to confess sin. You have to have Christ reigning and ruling preeminent in your life. Let's go to Psalm 86 where that was the text. The throne of grace. Why is it called a throne of grace? Because that's exactly what it is. When you hear the word grace... Always remember unmerited favor. I'm getting exactly the opposite of what I deserve. So it is a throne of grace. And God has to remind us that we have a great high priest now in the heavens. Nothing that we have experienced that he hasn't experienced and been tempted with, yet without sin. And he's a gracious and compassionate high priest. So therefore, go to him and call out to him. But it's a throne of grace. So some have said, well, they didn't have that in the Old Testament. Oh, yes, they did. It's the same throne of grace. Here's a list of 24 times in the Psalter, When you see this prayer, NASB is particularly good because it's consistent in translating each one of these requests. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. You know what basis that means? They're calling to God on the basis of grace. When they say, be gracious to me, they're saying, extend grace to me. I need grace. Turn to me and be gracious to me. I'm lonely and afflicted. I don't deserve this kind of comfort from you, but would you extend grace and mercy to me? Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, be gracious to me. Psalm 51, when David sinned, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Psalm 41, O Lord, be gracious to me, for I have sinned against you. Psalm 67.1, God be gracious to us and bless us over and over. That means that the psalmists are praying on the basis of grace, of undeserved merit, and they understood it. This is so helpful to me. When I go to the Lord, I I remind myself to call out to God when I say, Be gracious to me. Lord, you have been so kind to me. You have been so compassionate. I'm here before your throne. I'm not conscious and aware of any sin that I have in my life right now. Because if I, Psalm 66, if I'm aware of that, then the Lord will not hear me. I'm trying to treat my wife in a godly way. Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor to the weaker vessel, but as being equal heirs of the grace of life. Why? So that your prayers won't be hindered. So if I'm not doing that, my prayers are going to be hindered. But assuming that I come before the bottom line is always this. Lord, I'm approaching you on grace, on the basis of grace, unmerited favor, giving me the opposite of what I deserve. And so would you hear and answer? Now watch how this is flushed out in Psalm 86. By the way, this is we believe in a sovereign God. Seven times. Here in this psalm, he prays to Adonai. Adonai is the word for the sovereign God. So God is sovereign. You know why that's good to pray to a sovereign God? Because if he can't control everything, what good is it to pray to him? He's the one who changes hearts. He's the one who holds all events in his hands. So, incline your ear, O Yahweh, four times, and answer me. Why? Why? because I, it's emphatic, am poor and needy, and preserve my life for I'm godly. He doesn't mean I'm so advanced in my sanctification. He says, I'm one of the chesed. I'm one of your covenantal children who are under chesed, the covenantal loyalty in the Old Testament. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Don't save me because I trust in you. Be gracious to me. O Adonai, Sovereign God. You jump down to verse uh, 6. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my... Some of you are going to have the word supplication. It is a noun, but I like what ESV does, my plea for grace, because in the middle of this word for supplication is the word chain. it is grace, it is mercy. So he understands, he's praying to God on the basis of grace. But he has to appropriate, he has to go before the throne of grace. He has to call upon the Lord. Proud people don't call upon the Lord, they trust in themselves. Proud people don't serve, they want others to serve them. And so we go to the throne of grace, the throne of prayer, and say, Lord, I'm such a needy person I'm so selfish by nature, even as a sinner. I think of myself far too highly than I ought. I want my way far too often. I don't always guard my mouth as I should. Lord, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Somebody crosses me in traffic and cuts me off. You know what I didn't want to do, Lord? Yeah, you know what you want to do. Say, Lord, help me not to return evil for evil, but rather blessing. Lord, I see this person over here, and they're struggling with sin. Would you be gracious to them? Would you convict them in their heart about sin, that sin is not good for them? Would you turn their hearts back to you? I'm pleading on the basis of grace because you have told us we have a great, throne of grace and mercy. And some of us have loved ones. We have loved ones that don't know the Savior. So what do I do? Lord, I've spoken to them. I've proclaimed the truth to them, but their hearts are hardened as of right now, and they don't respond. Lord, I'm not calling out to you because I'm such a righteous person and I figured it all out. I'm a person of grace. Lord, would you be gracious to them? Maybe it's a son. Maybe it's a daughter. Maybe it's an uncle. Maybe it's an aunt. Lord, you're the only one who can take it to the heart. We can only take it to the ear. Lord, work upon their wills, convict them of sin, and draw them to yourself. That's what we do in the throne of grace. Verse 15, you, O Adonai, O sovereign one. That doesn't prevent him from calling upon God. It's an incentive to him to call. You're a God merciful and gracious. He goes right back to that great revelation at Sinai. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so turn to me and be gracious to me and give your strength to your servant. I worship with a people of grace. You're a people of grace. If you know the Savior, you're a people of grace. Paul said this, Not many mighty, not many noble, maybe a few wise in this world, but even of them God draws some to himself. And so I look around, we're a people of grace. Let us appropriate grace. Here it is. It's the book of grace. It's called the word of his grace. Are you appropriating grace? Are you reading it? Are you establishing godly habits? Your sanctification will not take place as it ought if you do not read this book and think upon it. Oh, if you're truly God's children, he will discipline you. (laughs) He will do what he needs to do to get you motivated. But, and he disciplines all of us, but read his book. And if you don't understand it, cry out to him. There are helps to help you understand it. Talk to another godly friend. And when sin is running over you like a bulldozer and it seems like you can't get out of it, talk to another person. Come to one of the elders and say, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? Would you mentor me? Those are... You have to appropriate grace. You don't get it infused like I get up in the morning and I drink my cup of coffee so I wish I had one over here I could just drink a cup of grace and I'm a graceful person all day long no here's where it comes from and it comes from the throne of grace by calling out to the God of all grace may God make us a people of the book a people of prayer a people of grace and if you're here this morning And you've only got intellectual truths between your ears. And sanctification has not taken place in your life. It may be because there has been no justification. Turn and genuinely repent of your sins and believe upon the Savior for his glory. And so we're going to close with that appropriate hymn by John Newton who said, I know a few things. I know I'm not what I ought to be right now, but I also know I'm not what I used to be, and I also know the third thing, that I'm not what I will one day be. And that inspired him to write Amazing Grace. Let us sing it together.